You're listening to Quantum Harry the Podcast, a podcast version of the book Quantum Harry, A Unified Theory of the Potterverse by B.L. Purdom. Episode 32, The Mirror and the Stone. This episode is the second part of a two-episode arc examining tarot imagery in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Last time I began to examine the cards in the Tarot Major Arcana, whose symbolism can help to illuminate various things in the first Harry Potter book, specifically what I call the Column Cards. So if you missed episode 31, or if you missed that and episode 30, you should go back. Anytime you want to listen or re-listen to any episode, just go to the Quantum Harry Twitter page, at QHPodcast, and click on the link in the pinned tweet to go to the Quantum Harry episode guide, which has links to all of the episodes in audio and video formats, plus links to blog posts related to some of the episodes. Having looked at the column cards last time, cards 1, 8, and 15, the Magician, Justice, and the Devil, this time I'll examine the sequential cards for the first book, which is to say, the cards numbered 1, 2, and 3. And finally, each of the seven books in the series not only aligns with one of the obstacles to the Philosopher's Stone in the first book, but each also aligns with one of the seven Horcruxes, and each Horcrux has a connection to the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher for that book. Examining the tarot symbolism linked to each book can shed clearer light on these alignments, some of which are not as clear without this symbolism as a guide. I also want to encourage everyone to take a look at the images on the Quantum Harry blog, on my Instagram account, on the Quantum Harry Pinterest board, or the Quantum Harry Facebook group, which might make it easier to picture what I'm talking about when I refer to the symbolism on the tarot cards, though I'm attempting in the podcast to describe these images in adequate detail. You may also find it helpful to re-listen to the episode when it's available on YouTube, so you can see the images I'll include in the video. The Justice card, number 8 in the Tarot Major Arcana, is in the Realm of Equilibrium, the name for the middle of the three horizontal rows of cards in the Tarot Major Arcana. The first seven cards in the top row are known as the Realm of the Gods. In this first row are the cards numbered 1 through 7, the Magician, the High Priestess, the Empress, the Emperor, the High Priest, sometimes called the Hierophant or the Pope, the Lovers, and the Chariot. The seed card for this book is the Magician, card number 1. The Magician is often depicted with an infinity sign somewhere on the card, whether it's floating over his head or he's wearing a hat that looks like a squashy sideways number 8. And many versions of this card also show the magician wearing an Ouroboros belt, which is the Greek word for the image of a snake eating its own tail, a symbol of infinitude. These symbols point to the magician being the epitome of both wholeness and potential power. In the first Harry Potter book, Quirrell says, There is no good and evil, only power, and those too weak to seek it. Even though we see throughout the series that it takes more strength to refrain from seeking power than to pursue it, which Dumbledore knows, and at which he ultimately fails when he puts on the cursed ring horcrux, because it's set with the resurrection stone. Power being neutral, needing someone to use it in a good or evil way, is epitomized by the magician card with its many powerful symbols. 
The Philosopher's Stone can also be used for good or for evil. On its own, it's morally neutral and not inherently good or bad. Dumbledore, the archetypal magician and the head teacher at Hogwarts, which has houses that can be represented by the wand, sword, cup, and coin suits of the tarot deck, worked with Nicholas Flamel on alchemical experiments. Of the two, only Flamel uses the stone to make the elixir of life, which allows him and his wife to live for over 600 years. Dumbledore's life doesn't seem to be artificially prolonged, and there are other quite elderly witches and wizards in the books, one of whom is so old that she oversaw Dumbledore's OWL examinations at the end of his fifth year at Hogwarts. It's unlikely that her longevity is due to the elixir of life. Dumbledore being the epitome of the archetype of the magician, who is shown with symbols of all of the tarot suits, makes sense because Dumbledore, as the headmaster of Hogwarts, is also linked in some way to all of the Hogwarts houses. Dumbledore is a Gryffindor by sorting and was the Gryffindor head of house and the transfiguration professor before McGonagall was. His given name is Albus, a link to Alba, the Celtic name for Scotland, as I talked about in episode 29. Scotland is linked to Ravenclaw, which I talked about in episodes 18 and 29, and hence this is linked to Dumbledore's scholarly nature. Like Helga Hufflepuff, Dumbledore has a cup of sorts, the Ponceve, in which he examines memories, using these to educate Harry. And like many Slytherins, in his youth he supported a philosophy favoring wizards over muggles, along with his friend Gellert Grindelwald. The symbol of the Deathly Hallows has for its tarot equivalent the disc or coin depicting a five-pointed star drawn with five lines, the pentacle, which is the fourth tarot suit shown on the magician card, and which is the suit linked to Slytherin House. Now, when I say that the magician is the first seed card, I mean that it's the first of three cards that tell the first stage of the tarot story, of Harry's story in this case. The next seed card, whose symbolism will be important to the second book, is the Emperor card, number four. The two cards that follow each seed card go together with the seed card to tell one of seven stories on the way to the final card of the major arcana, the world. The sequential cards for the first book are the first three, the Magician, card number one, the High Priestess, card number two, and the Empress, card number three. They can be thought of as matching up with the three people in Harry's generation to whom he will eventually be closest, Ron Weasley, Ginny Weasley, and Hermione Granger. I believe that Dumbledore is the best representative of the Magician in the first book when we're looking at the column cards for this book. But Ron has many things in common with Dumbledore, as I talked about in episode two, This Old Man. It's no coincidence that they both embody the archetype of the wise old man, the ruling archetype for the first book, which is equivalent to the tarot archetype of the magician. Ron introduces Harry to new information and experiences in a world familiar to Ron, but he does this in a less didactic and pedantic way than a teacher would. He's also the chess master, as opposed to the headmaster. This ability and his selfless sacrifice during the life-size chess game distinguish him in the first book of the series. Ginny doesn't appear much in the first book, but when she does, waving goodbye to her brothers and to Harry on the train, she is the embodiment of the High Priestess, the second card, which is equivalent to the archetype of the Maiden, 
as I talked about in Episode 3, Iron Maiden. At the train station, Ginny, the representative of the archetypal maiden, is seeing Harry off on a new part of his life. Her introduction at the start is key because she is, in the long run, his equal and counterpart. In Jung and Tarot, An Archetypal Journey, Sally Nichols writes, The High Priestess is the epitome of woman, spiritual descendant of goddesses like Isis, Ishtar, and Venus, of the Virgin Mary and Sophia, divine wisdom. Even though Ginny barely exists in the first book, she will rule the column governing the second book in the series, the book ruled by the archetype of the Maiden, and also ruled by the equivalent tarot archetype, the High Priestess. I already examined the cards that link to the Magician card in the last episode, namely the Wheel of Fortune card, number 10, because 1 plus 0 equals 1, the number of the Magician card, and the Sun card, number 19, because 1 plus 9 equals 10, and then 1 plus 0 equals 1. There are also links between the High Priestess card and two others, Strength, card number 11, because 1 plus 1 makes 2, the number of the High Priestess, and Judgment, card number 20, because 2 plus 0 equals 2. The Strength card usually shows a woman taming a lion, which could be considered another image of the formidable High Priestess. Alternately, we could focus on the lion, the symbol of Gryffindor, and the way that it's being held in check and controlled by this unknown person, just as Harry must now learn to control his magic and follow school rules in order to learn what he needs to know to join the wizarding world. Card number 20, Judgment, often shows dead bodies rising from what appear to be open graves, presumably on Judgment Day, a reference to the Book of Revelation in the Bible. This could refer to Harry's resurrection after three days, following Dumbledore bringing him out of the symbolic underworld where the Philosopher's Stone was being protected. The High Priestess's link to the first book is that she, like the archetypal maiden, is about new beginnings and entering a new world, plus secrets and mysteries, which abound at the start of the series. Ginny as a character is the embodiment of the High Priestess, but she doesn't need to be present for this card to have this meaning in connection to the first book in the series. Hermione, in contrast to Ginny, is very present in the first book after the troll incident. She is a clear embodiment of the Empress, card number three, which is equivalent to the mother archetype. She is a mother figure to Harry, as I talk about in episode four, Mother May I. She keeps his nose to the grindstone and is concerned with new life and growing things, which is important when she is the one who knows how to get past Devil's Snare because she paid attention in Herbology lessons. After she solves Snape's potions riddle, she gives Harry a motherly hug and a speech of encouragement to gird him for confronting the archetype of the Devil, the bottom card in the first column, and assuring that justice is done justice being the middle card in the first column, represented by Harry, the liminal being, someone who has a foot in two worlds, the muggle world and then the wizarding world, as well as being someone who eventually literally dies and is resurrected, though his death and resurrection is only symbolic in the first book. Two cards are linked to the Empress card, the Hanged Man, card number 12, because 1 plus 2 equals 3, the number of the Empress card, and the world, card number 21, because 2 plus 1 equals 3. But perhaps because these are only numerically linked, 
the symbols on these cards seem to connect only faintly to this book. The Hanged Man, card number 12, depicts a man being hung upside down over an open pit, not someone with a hangman's noose around his neck, as you might expect from the name. This card is also called the Traitor, Il Traditore in Italian decks, because hanging someone upside down was called baffling, and this was specifically a punishment for traitors. In fact, this tradition has survived for so long in Italy that Il Duce, Benito Mussolini himself, was hung upside down. This card could point either to the traitor Peter Pettigrew, who we don't yet know is the true identity of Ron's pet rat, Scabbers, or it's possible that it could be a link to Sirius Black, who was thought to have betrayed James and Lily Potter, Harry's parents. Sirius is mentioned offhandedly by Hagrid early in the book because he borrowed Sirius's enchanted motorcycle. It's also possible that the Hanged Man card, or the traitor Il Traditore, could point to Professor Quirrell, who certainly betrayed Dumbledore by becoming Voldemort's servant, and betrayed Harry in turn by attempting to deliver him to Voldemort. Or maybe the Hanged Man is referencing all three of these, Peter, Sirius, and Quirrell. All of them are masked in some way in the first book, until Quirrell alone is unmasked and revealed as a traitor. The world card, number 21, is extremely important at the end of the series, where it will have a double influence in the seventh book, as both a column card and a sequence card, just as the magician card is both a column card and a sequence card in the first book. The world's faint influence here, through its link to the Empress, is more evidence of the symmetry with which Rowling has constructed not only this book, but her entire series. Like the Wheel of Fortune card, the World card also often includes a depiction in the four corners of the four evangelists. In the last episode, I talked about how each evangelist can be linked to one of the Hogwarts houses, which makes the inclusion of these symbols on the world card collectively one symbol of wholeness and integration, just as the symbols of the Tarot Minor Arcana suits are on the first card, the Magician. The symbols on the world card point to the importance of wholeness and integration to all seven books, and wholeness is also a theme of alchemy, which is the process through which the Philosopher's Stone is created. The number three and the cards that add up to three, the Empress, the Hanged Man, and the World, are a big part of that. For instance, the importance of the number three in the series comes up over and over. We have the three members of the trio, Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Eventually we'll have the counter trio, Neville, Ginny, and Luna. And remember, the six members of the two trios embody each of the six gender and age-related archetypes, as I talked about in episode seven, Fountain of Youth. Then there are the three other tournament champions, and each of these champions is a doppelganger to Harry, Ron, and Hermione, because each member of the trio is jealous of one of the three non-Harry champions. And each of the non-Harry champions is also aligned with someone in the counter trio, Victor with Ginny, Fleur with Luna, and Cedric with Neville. So that's nine, three times three. Then there are the three Deathly Hallows, the three marauders who accompany Harry to his death, the tournament that was to have three tasks and three champions, the three members of the Dursley family, the three Black Sisters, and many, many other groups of three throughout the series, all connected to the wholeness epitomized in the world card. 
The characters who embody the first and third sequence cards, Ron the magician slash archetypal wise old man, and Hermione the empress slash archetypal mother, are with Harry throughout most of the first book, and the person embodying the second, Ginny the high priestess slash archetypal maiden, is barely seen. However, she appears again at the close of the book, waiting for the Hogwarts students on the train platform with her mother. When she says, there he is, she doesn't mean Ron, her brother, or any of her brothers, but Harry. The magician, high priestess, and empress are with Harry at the end of his first journey. He's now ready to continue his trek to wholeness, which will come when he has completed his journey through all 21 cards. In episodes 2 through 9, I looked at how Harry steps into the shoes of the character best embodying the ruling archetype for each of the seven books, the archetypes being, in order, the wise old man, the maiden, the mother, the father, the crone, the youth, and the liminal being. In episodes 10 through 29, I looked at how each book aligns with one of the game-like obstacles to the Philosopher's Stone in the first book as well as each book aligning with one of the thresholds that Harry crosses with Hagrid or with his help in the first book. Now that we're in part three of Quantum Harry, I'll examine how each book also aligns with one of the seven Horcruxes, which is in turn tied to each book's defense against the Dark Arts teacher. I didn't look at this set of alignments earlier because it's easiest to understand which Horcrux goes with which book when the tarot cards for each book are used as a kind of guide. Let's look again at what's going on at the end of the first book in the series. Three entities in the chamber with Quirrell slash Voldemort align with the Deathly Hallows. The Philosopher's Stone is like a doppelganger to the Elder Wand, which are both items Voldemort is pursuing in the first and seventh books to increase and maintain his power. The Mirror of Erised has many parallels to the Resurrection Stone. And Harry, who was also in the chamber, has his built-in protection from Lily in his very skin, and this aligns with the Invisibility Cloak, Death's own cloak, the Third Hallow, the cloak that was his father's, so he is one form of protection from his mother and another from his father, meaning that once again, when Harry is with a particular object, this time his Invisibility Cloak, it's a moment of completion for him, because this means that he has a legacy from both his mother and his father when this is the case. However, the reason that the Horcrux that aligns with the first book is the ring containing the Resurrection Stone is because this stone and the Philosopher's Stone are like two sides of the mirror of life and death, and together they make a whole. The Philosopher's Stone is a fitting representative in the first book of the Hallow of the Elder Wand because, as mentioned, each of these objects is sought by Voldemort at opposite ends of the series as a solution to what he perceives to be his greatest problem, living forever. But when it comes to the two stones, the Philosopher's Stone is used to brew the elixir of life, while the Resurrection Stone allows someone to bring back a shadowy version of a person who has died, but who definitely isn't alive again. Undead is an appropriate label for someone brought back this way. 
The ring with the resurrection stone is a legacy for Harry from Dumbledore, given to him inside the snitch that Harry catches in his first Quidditch match, which is very likely to be the real reason that J.K. Rowling has Harry play Quidditch in his first year, rather than waiting for his second. This first match, which is against Slytherin, is another element of the first book reflected in the last, when Harry plays his final match, a metaphorical one against the Slytherin Voldemort, this time catching the Elder Wand like a snitch, just as he catches the Philosopher's Stone from the mirror. This comparison is furthered by Harry having no desire to keep the Elder Wand, just as he has no desire to use the Philosopher's Stone. All he wants to do with the Elder Wand is to repair his original wand, and then put the Elder Wand back in Dumbledore's tomb, where it will eventually be without a master if Harry dies a natural death, or if no one, for the rest of Harry's life, disarms him. Dumbledore, who embodies the Magician, which is both a column card and the seed card for the first book, is linked to both the Philosopher's Stone, since he helped create it, and the Resurrection Stone, which he took from an enemy, and which ultimately leads to his drawn-out death, until Snape kills him as an act of mercy. Dumbledore is also linked to the Elder Wand, having taken it from Grindelwald. Now, all of what I just said is good reason for the ring with the Resurrection Stone to be the horcrux that aligns with the first book. But what does any of that have to do with Tarot, or with Quirrell being the defense against the Dark Arts teacher in the first book? Here's where Tarot helps us to see that connection. When we look at the Devil card at the bottom of the first column of cards, the symbolism on it applies to Quirrell and to Voldemort in different ways. Quirrell himself is not the devil on the card. That's Voldemort. In episodes 12 through 14, when I examined Chamber of Secrets as J.K. Rowling's version of Little Red Riding Hood, I talked about the many parallels between wolves in Nordic mythology and snakes in the Bible, which are linked to the devil. In episodes 14 and 26, I also talked about the Voldemort name game, in which you don't want to accidentally say his name and summon him, just as people once avoided saying the devil's name and used other nicknames instead. If anyone embodies the archetype of the devil, card number 15, it's definitely Voldemort. So if Quirrell isn't the devil, but he's on the devil card, who is he? He's one of the chained servants. He calls Voldemort master and fears his wrath. And what are chains made from? They're made from rings. The Resurrection Stone could have been set into any kind of jewelry or ornament, or left without a setting, but Rowling chose this link, so to speak, to Harry's first defense against the Dark Arts teacher, which is easiest to see when we examine the connection of the Tarot Major Arcana cards to each book. You've been listening to Quantum Harry the Podcast, a podcast version of the book Quantum Harry, A Unified Theory of the Potterverse by B. L. Purdom. All music heard on Quantum Harry is composed and performed by B. L. Purdom. Whether you are streaming on iTunes, Stitcher, Castbox, or another podcatcher, please leave a rating and/or a comment, and share episodes of Quantum Harry with your friends. Next time on Quantum Harry, episode thirty-three. 
The Inverted Tower of Secrets, the beginning of a two-episode arc about tarot imagery in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. I hope you'll join me. Thank you.